Good to see you all this morning. Great to see if you're here for the first time. An extra special welcome to you. It's lovely to have you here this morning. I wonder if you can remember where you were when you heard that the Queen died. We were having dinner with Sallow and Lara when the news came through. If you're a bit older, you might be able to remember where you were when Princess Diana died, or if you're even older, you might remember where you were when JFK was shot way back in 1963. Where massive historical events like that take place, it's rare that you are expecting the events to happen, or that you've got really any idea of the the consequences of what you've witnessed, really kind of life-changing, world-changing events. The Bible tells us about five men who were present when Jesus died. But 24 hours earlier, they had no idea of the massive significance of the events that they were about to witness and actually be part of. These five men were Roman soldiers. Four of them were Roman auxiliary soldiers, men who'd probably come from Syria or Turkey to the north and had volunteered to join the Roman army as part of the empire. They weren't proper Roman soldiers, legionaries, because you had to be a Roman citizen to be a legionary. But after 25 years of service, these auxiliaries could qualify for Roman citizenship. And these four men were were hard, they were tough, they'd probably killed many, many times, they'd seen many deaths right there in front of their eyes, they'd probably seen many crucifixions as well. This is a typical Roman sword or a replica of a Roman sword. This is what a Roman soldier would carry, just like these um, auxiliaries. This is a typical javelin and a typical spear and um, a similar uh, shield that a a Roman soldier, a Roman auxiliary would uh, use. The fifth soldier was a centurion who would have been a Roman citizen from Italy and would have commanded 80 men. Centurions had to be at least 30 years old. They had to be, they were kind of the elite. They had to be smart. They had to be very intelligent, able to read and write. They had to be an experienced legionary before being promoted to the the, uh, kind of exalted rank of centurion. And the role of this particular centurion and his men was to keep order in Jerusalem. And that included carrying out crucifixions. These five men found themselves on duty on the most important day in world history far greater than the day the Queen died, Princess Diana died, or JFK. At about 8 a.m. on the most important day in history, the centurion and some of his men, including these four auxiliary soldiers, were ordered to take Jesus and to flog him. Pilate, the Roman governor, had been trying to avoid putting Jesus to death, and he hoped that by having Jesus flogged, maybe that would be sufficient to avoid actually having to uh, put him to death, and that would satisfy the Jewish authorities. The leaders of the Jews had asked Pilate to have Jesus put to death because he claimed to be the Messiah, this great promised king that God had promised he was going to send, and he also claimed to be the Son of God. But to these soldiers, the idea of a king who had no army, who had no power, who had no soldiers, would have been an absolute joke. And no doubt they laughed at Jesus as they dragged him away to flog him. After stripping him naked and tying him to a post, they whipped him with what was called a flagrum, flagrum, which was a leather whip with bits of metal and bone in its strands. And they whipped him over and over again until his back and his body was absolutely, utterly ripped to shreds and he could barely stand. And the centurion stepped in when Jesus was on the verge of collapsing and becoming unconscious. And then his men took Jesus into the palace, the praetorium. 
And to make fun of Jesus, they, 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 they put a soldier's cloak on him to kind of mock the purple robe that the emperor or a king would wear. And to mock the idea of Jesus being a king, they got some thorns from the date palm tree with its thorns, which are sometimes up to 12 inches long. And they twisted it together to make a crown of thorns in mockery, an imitation crown. And then they thrust it down onto Jesus' head. Whilst the centurion came up and he handed over his centurion's vine stick, which was his symbol of power that every centurion would carry. And his soldiers put the centurion's vine stick in Jesus' hands, and then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. And then they spat on him, and they took the centurion's vine staff off him, and they hit Jesus repeatedly around the head with it. Having had their fun, they took Jesus back to Pilate. And no doubt Pilate hoped that by this time he'd done enough to satisfy the Jewish authorities, and that would keep them quiet. Jesus could go. So wearing the purple robe and the, the, the crown of thorns, Pilate brought Jesus out to the crowd and told them that he couldn't find any reason to have him put to death. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and he went back inside the palace. But after talking further with Jesus, he gave in to the pressure from the Jews and he took Jesus out to the official judgment seat and he presented to Jesus as their, he presented the, Jesus to the crowd as their king. Behold the man, he said. But the Jews cried out that they had no king except for Caesar. And so Pilate gave in and he gave orders for Jesus to be crucified in the greatest travesty, the greatest injustice in world history. And so with the centurion in charge, these four soldiers that had already taken part in the flogging of Jesus, they led Jesus away. They took off the purple robe and they put his own clothes back on him and they, and they lifted the horizontal beam that would become part of Jesus' cross and they placed it on Jesus' shoulders. And as weak and as exhausted as Jesus was from the, the, the flogging and the beating and as excruciatingly painful as his lacerated back was, Jesus carried the cross. And behind him in a kind of mock procession were two other men, two violent criminals. They were going to be crucified side by side of Jesus. And led by these four soldiers with the centurion in charge, Jesus staggered through the streets of Jerusalem until he got outside the city walls where he collapsed, unable to go on any further. One of the soldiers grabbed a man from North Africa, a man called Simon, who was walking past the city gate, and they forced this man, Simon, to carry the crossbeam of Jesus' cross. By this time, a large, a large crowd was also following Jesus, lots of whom were the women who had been following Jesus for the last uh, two to three or four years, become his followers. And, and with Simon behind him carrying his cross, Jesus continued to stagger along the path, led by the four soldiers, until they came to the place that was nicknamed Golgotha, the place of the skull. And there, Jesus collapsed in exhaustion and utter agony, with his body ripped to shreds by the horrendous flogging and in complete shock, his body going into shutdown. One of the ladies in the crowd brought some wine that she'd mixed with herbs, and she she gave it to one of the soldiers to try and use as a sedative for Jesus to drink. But despite Jesus' intense thirst caused by the, the kind of shock and the, the body going into, into shutdown, despite being so thirsty, when Jesus tasted it, 
and realized that it contained a sedative, he refused to drink it. At 9 a.m., one hour after flogging Jesus, they took the crossbeam from Simon and they attached it to what would become the cross, the, the horizontal piece, the horizontal, the upright section of the cross which was lying on the ground. And the soldiers then ordered Jesus to strip naked. And when he couldn't do it, they, they, they pulled his clothes off him and they threw him down on his back onto the cross. They stretched his arms out and they hammered six-inch nails into his hands and into his feet. The centurion gave them a, a flat piece of wood with the words, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews, painted on it in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. Pilate had ordered it to be attached to the cross was the charge that Jesus was being crucified for. And after nailing Jesus' hands and feet to the cross, they nailed this piece of wood above Jesus' head in further mockery. And then they raised that cross up and they dropped it into a pre-prepared socket in the ground and the tidal wave of pain screamed through Jesus' body as he was jolted as it landed in the ground. And recoiling from the overwhelming assault on his senses, Jesus pushed himself up, filling his lungs, and said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The four soldiers looked at each other, taken aback by what Jesus said, and then under the watchful eye of the centurion, who was equally surprised by Jesus' words, they then crucified the two other criminals, one on either side of Jesus, with more of the centurion soldiers performing crowd control. Jesus had been stripped completely naked and his clothes, his sandals, his outer robe, his belt and his head covering and his undergarment lay at a pile, lay in a pile at the foot of the cross. One of the perks for the soldiers on crucifixion party was that they got to keep the clothes of the man of the people that they crucified. And so one of them took Jesus' sandals, one of them took his belt, one of them took his outer robe and one took the head covering. But this still left Jesus' undergarment which he wore next to his skin, and it was a seamless piece of material that Jesus wrapped around his body underneath, next to his skin, underneath his outer robe. And so rather than ruin it by tearing it into four pieces, they decided to cast lots to see who would get it. Having had their fun and having got some of the bonus of free clothes, they sat down to the, close to the cross to watch Jesus and the two criminals die. As they sat there, watched by the puzzled centurion, some people in the crowd, including the, the Jewish religious leaders, began to shout at Jesus in mockery, He saved others. Let Him save Himself if He's God's Messiah, the Chosen One. And, and, and finding this hilarious, the four soldiers stood up and joined in, not really understanding what the Jews were on about, but they didn't want to miss out on some of the fun. They offered Him some sour wine vinegar which was designed actually to make Jesus more alert and so intensify and prolong the agony and the pain. And they joined in the mockery, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And at this point, one of the criminals also joined in. But as the soldiers and the centurion watched, the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The soldiers and the centurion stood puzzled as Jesus turned his head towards the criminal and said, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. As the hours passed 
and midday approached. The mockery continued from the crowd and the, the soldiers watched as again and again Jesus pushed himself up to try to get air into his lungs to be able to breathe. But as he pushed up, the, the excruciating pain of the nails in his hands and his feet meant that he could only manage to do this for a few moments before he had to collapse back down again and rest his bottom on the, the wooden support between his legs called the sedecula. But although this partially supported the weight of Jesus' body, his battered body, it was actually designed to increase the agony, not to relieve it. And so the pain went on and on as the sun grew hotter and hotter. And just before midday, the soldiers and the centurion watched as, as four women, including Mary, Jesus' mother, and one of Jesus' disciples, John, approached the, the foot of the cross. They watched, bemused, as Jesus entrusted his mother to John's care. Dear woman, here is your son. And then to John, here is your mother. As it reached midday, what the Romans called the, the sixth hour, the sun was blazing down on Jesus. As in utter agony, he struggled and continued to fight for every breath. When suddenly it went dark, the sun stopped shining and the darkness was almost tangible. It could be felt. And the soldiers and the centurion were, were highly suspicious and they were terrified. What was happening? Why had it suddenly gone dark? It was midday. And as the temperature rapidly dropped because the sun had gone in, they stood there shivering, wondering what on earth was happening. For three hours in the darkness, they continued to watch as Jesus, as he hung in horrendous agony, naked and ashamed, gasping for air, his body racked with pain. Until about 3 a.m., Jesus pushed himself up to inflate his lungs once more, and he cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the Jews that were standing there thought that Jesus was calling out for Elijah, one of the Old Testament prophets. And then Jesus cried out again, I am thirsty. And the centurion nodded to one of the soldiers who lifted up a sponge soaked in wine vinegar again and, and lifted it up for Jesus to drink. Jesus drank from the sponge, and then he cried out, it is finished. And then after he caught his breath for one more time, he cried out again, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And with that, he breathed his last, and his body hung limp on the cross. Suddenly, the ground began to shake, and the rocks around the cross began to break violently into pieces, and the soldiers were terrified as a violent earthquake took place. They had killed many men. They'd seen many men killed in front of them. They'd taken part in many crucifixions, but this was like nothing they had ever experienced or seen or heard of before. It was utterly terrifying. And the centurion stood up and straightened himself up, and in a loud voice for all to hear, for his men to hear, and for those around the cross to hear, he said this, surely this was a righteous man. Surely this was the Son of God. And as he finished speaking, the earthquake began to stop, and the sun began to shine once more. As the afternoon drew to a close and the evening approached, Jesus' body continued to hang limp on the cross, a messenger from Pilate came running to the centurion and instructed him to get the bodies down before sunset. So he commanded his soldiers, these four soldiers, to go and to break the legs with a big hammer, to crush the knees, to break the legs of the criminals and Jesus, to speed up their death so they'd no longer be able to support themselves, so they would suffocate effectively. But when they came to Jesus after breaking the legs of the two criminals and speeding their death up, 
When they came to Jesus, they were pretty sure he was already dead. And so with Jesus' disciple, John, watching him, one of the soldiers took a spear, a spear just like this one. And he took it and he raised it up above him and he thrust it into Jesus' side. And as he thrust it in, blood and water came pouring down, down Jesus' body and all down over the soldier who had just done that, proving beyond any doubt that Jesus was definitely and truly dead. The physical suffering of Jesus is difficult to describe. It's impossible to do it justice, and it's even harder to take it in. It must have been utterly, utterly horrendous to watch and 10 times more utterly horrendous to experience. But Jesus' physical crucifixion wasn't really any different to the hundreds of thousands of crucifixions that the Romans inflicted on people all throughout the empire. No different to the two men either side of him. What made Jesus' death different and unique and so important, which is why his death, and on that day was the, the most important day in history, was what happened during those three hours of darkness from midday till three in the afternoon. The Bible tells us that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Despite being utterly sinless, despite being a righteous man as the centurion realized, Jesus took all of your sin, he took all my sin, and he put it on himself. He became our sin. And as he did so, God the Father, his Father, poured out all the wrath that your sin deserves and my deserves. He poured it out on Jesus instead of us. That's why the sun stopped shining. And in some way that we will never understand, the eternal relationship between God the Father and God the Son, the Lord Jesus, was broken or altered. He was forsaken by God for those three hours. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He no longer calls him Father. He now addresses him as God. In some way, the relationship he'd had for all eternity was somehow altered. Jesus was truly alone, and he experienced the utter hell of separation from his Father as he took your, the punishment for your sin and my sin. So that if we put our faith and our trust in him and what he did for us there on the cross, God will forgive our sins. He will declare us to be as righteous and perfect as Jesus is. God takes our sin, he puts it on Jesus, and he takes Jesus' righteousness and perfection, and he gives it to us in the greatest exchange in history. And that means that we can have an eternal relationship with God, just like the one that Jesus enjoyed for all eternity. It means our sins can be forgiven. It means that we can be declared righteous and have this wonderful relationship with God. I don't know about you, but I find the indifference of the soldiers to Jesus and to his death Staggering and puzzling. They were totally blind. They were totally indifferent to what was going on right in front of them. And yet, you know, so many people today continue to be indifferent to Jesus, to who he is, and to what he suffered 2,000 years ago. They're spiritually blind, the Bible says. It's possible to come along to church each Sunday to hear about Jesus on the cross, and yet to still be totally indifferent to all that he did for us. Please don't be that person. Please don't reject Jesus and, and reject the love and the mercy and the grace and forgiveness that he offers you if you'll put your faith and trust in him. Please don't be that person. Can I challenge you and encourage you this morning 
to put your faith and your trust in the man who was lifted up on a cross in your place and mine. Put your faith and trust in him to have a relationship with God, to have your sins forgiven and to receive eternal life. Turn from your sin. Thank Jesus for dying for you. Pledge to give your life to him and follow him. Sadly, it's possible, you know, to, 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 to have trusted in Jesus and yet over time to become less and less interested in him and to become even cold and indifferent to Jesus, even though we've become a Christian. It's possible even to sit through communion week after week and be unmoved by what Jesus did there on the cross and continue perhaps with unconfessed sin and largely living without reference to God. If Jesus and the passion he showed for you on the cross is no longer moving your heart, can I plead with you this morning, do something about that before you leave here this morning. If you would call yourself a Christian, and yet you know your heart is cold, and this table leaves you unmoved and, and cold and indifferent, don't go home this morning without doing something about that. Come to the foot of the cross once more in faith, with eyes of faith, and, and, and ask God to rekindle the love and devotion in your heart for Him. The centurion was the complete opposite to his men. Despite being a ruthless soldier who had efficiently overseen the crucifixion of, of many, many men, he knew that Jesus was different. He's recorded as saying two things after Jesus had died. Firstly, he said that Jesus was a righteous man. In other words, he was saying, I was wrong to have crucified Jesus. Pilate, his governor, was wrong, and the Jewish leaders were wrong. And to say that was not only to put his job on the line, but actually his life on the line. He was, he was committing treason. He was committing mutiny. He was going against the orders of his commanding officer. He was publicly contradicting Pilate, which was effectively mutiny. And that was an unthinkable thing to do for any soldier, especially a centurion in the Roman army. Secondly, he said that Jesus was the Son of God. He was effectively professing and trusting and, and putting faith in Jesus' deity, that Jesus was God. And that was also a hugely dangerous thing to do because that's why the Jews wanted Jesus dead. Because he claimed to be God and to have come from God and to be God's son. I'm sure the centurion didn't have it all worked out and understand who Jesus was in perhaps the way that we do this morning. Knowing all that we do now from the Bible and the, and the accounts of Jesus' death and, and the New Testament. But seeing all that he had seen, he knew enough to know that Jesus' death was truly out of this world. He would have seen hundreds, perhaps thousands of men die in his military career. He'd probably overseen many, many crucifixions. But he'd never seen a death like Jesus. He'd never seen a man behave like Jesus whilst being crucified. And he'd never seen nature behave the way it did during any other crucifixions. He'd seen enough to know that Jesus was innocent, was sinless, and was righteous. And he'd seen enough to believe that Jesus wasn't just a man that he actually was the Son of God. The Bible doesn't tell us any more about him, but according to church tradition, he was called Longinus and he became a follower of Jesus. We don't know for sure what happened to him, but if he joined the ranks of the early disciples and the early church and became part of the early church after Jesus rose from the dead three days later and then ascended to heaven, then it's highly likely that as tradition has it, he was martyred for his faith. He was put to death because of his trust in Jesus. Going public with his faith 
as he did in front of the authorities, in front for all to see and hear right at the foot of the cross, was an incredibly dangerous thing for the centurion to do. All of this, of course, begs the question as to whether we are prepared to go public with our faith. The Apostle Paul writes these words in the Bible, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is what the Bible, it's the, it's the word the Bible used to refer to the, the good news that Jesus died and rose again and that we can have a relationship with God and be forgiven. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this truth, this good news, the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everybody who believes. Are we prepared to go public with our faith in Jesus and with our love for him, even if it's costly? It cost Paul who wrote those words. It cost Paul his life. But as we sung earlier, taken again from words of Paul in the book of Philippians, he says, all the things that I once held dear, I count loss. I count them actually as excrement, he says. That's the literal Greek word. Compared to knowing Jesus, everything else is worthless and rubbish. And I'm prepared to give my life for Jesus. And Paul did. He went on to be executed for being a follower of Jesus. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this good news. Are we prepared to not only go public with our faith, but are we prepared to suffer for the sake of Jesus and his gospel, the good news? Somebody once said, if it was illegal to be a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If it was illegal to be a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Of course, it is illegal to be a Christian in many countries in the world today. For many people around the world this morning, it's a dangerous thing to do. It may even be here soon, and it's certainly becoming much harder to say what we believe as Christians in this country and to stand for that. I'm looking forward to one day meeting the centurion. Are you? It'd be great, wouldn't it? And the criminal on the cross next to Jesus who trusted in Jesus to meet him. That'll be amazing, wouldn't it? And to meet Mary, Jesus' mother, and the Apostle John, and the Apostle Paul, and, and the countless others who we read about in the Bible. But as amazing as meeting, these, as meeting these people will be, how much more amazing will it be to see Jesus face to face? It'll be great to see these people, won't it? But how much more amazing will it be finally to stand there and see Jesus face to face? Of course, we will only see him face to face if we put our faith and trust in him. But if we've done that, then we have that wonderful joy to look forward to of finally seeing him face to face. And we'll see the scars and the marks of death that God has chosen never to erase. So that throughout all eternity, we will never forget the cost of our salvation. This morning, we take bread and wine to remember Jesus, all that he is, all that he's done, and, and perhaps especially the cross. But throughout eternity, we won't need to do this because we'll have Jesus himself in front of us with the marks of, and the scars of death forever in front of us. With a whole realm of nature mind, that would be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I'm going to pray and then the band are going to come and lead us. Oh, Father, we are... Overwhelmed this morning, Lord, when we think of what you have done for us. That you would send your son. That you loved the world so much that you gave your one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came 
and that you went to the cross knowing what would happen there at the cross, knowing all that would take place. And yet for the joy of us trusting in you, for the joy of us being with you for eternity, for that joy that was set before you, you endured the cross. You scorned its shame. We thank you right now that you're sat down at the right hand of God the Father. We come and we worship you this morning. We praise you. Thank you that you're prepared to endure the horrors of the cross for each one of us this morning. We praise you. We bring you our love. We bring you our devotion. And we pray in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen.